Welcome to Security All In. My name is Sam Curry, and I'm the Chief Security Officer for Cyber Reason. The spirit of Security All In is a little bit of a poker motif, a little bit of a discussion about risk, and to really understand what a lot of the folks who are luminaries in the industry or are on the frontier pushing our boundaries a bit, when did they go all in on security or when did security go all in on them, as the case may be, if that's happened at all? And I'm very pleased today to be joined by Michael Miora. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And uh, Michael, uh, I hope I get your title right. I think you're uh, Senior Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at Corn Ferry. Did I get that right? Absolutely right. Now, Michael, I really appreciate you joining us. When we first met, what struck me is that you had a background in mathematics and physics, which is near and dear to my heart. I studied physics in college as well. Did I get that right? Did I mishear it? Was that, in fact, your background when you started? Yes, it was. I started, I got my bachelor's degree in mathematics from UCLA and a master's degree in mathematics from UC Berkeley. And the physics component? The physics component actually came later. My first job out of college, I kind of uh, weaseled my way into an Air Force satellite control program. And my job was to do astrodynamics and astrophysics to help control, monitor, track these low earth flying there's a story there. How does one weasel one's way in, into an Air Force program? Were you in the Air Force, or was it something you, you set out to do as a civilian with them? I was never in the Air Force, and in fact, I got a job with a subsidiary of the Rand Corporation. And so during my job interview, the fellow who interviewed me, I found out later he also went to Cal, to UC Berkeley, and he said, well, I see you studied mathematics. Uh, do you know uh, astrodynamics? And of course- this so Which one says, of course, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, of course I do. Of course, I couldn't Google it back then because there was no Google. Right. I rushed to the library to look up what does astrodynamics mean, and I learned it a little bit while waiting to start the job. A few years later, he retired. He called me to his office. He said, you know, Michael, when you said you knew astrodynamics, I knew you were full of baloney. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I love that. Who dares wins, right? You're on the, uh, yes, you're on the lead. Yes. But it was a fun job for a year. And how long do you think it took you to actually become somebody who understood astrodynamics? Did the mathematics help you do it quickly or did you ever? It's basically mathematics applied to various kinds of natural laws that aren't so hard to learn. I'd never heard of them, but then once I studied them, I said, yeah, this makes perfectly good sense. I won't bore you with the details, but yeah, I could learn it pretty fast. And then I ended up spending a year helping calculate orbits to satellites using these gigantic mainframes that have less power than my Apple Watch has. So that was fun. I, of course, studied physics, but I only got an appreciation for, I guess, astrodynamics, but orbital mechanics with a book called Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson, which wasn't that long ago, because a huge amount of it is about preserving the human species in orbit, which is far more complicated than I would have thought. I don't know if you've read any Neil Stevenson, but that one's a, a good one if you get a chance. I will, I'll put it on my list. Now, you got into security at some point, from mathematics to working with the Air Force on satellites. At what point did you start thinking about either the darker side or how to prevent bad things from happening? Was it in either of those two phases, or did that come later? It was soon after I was doing the astrodynamics with satellites. In fact, while I was doing it, I started to get rather bored with the astrodynamics because it tends to get pretty repetitive. It sounds exciting, especially when you go to a cocktail party. What do you do? I'm a rocket scientist. Mm -hmm. That that turns heads. Yeah. 
but it's not very exciting. And after a while, the most exciting part of it for me was the piece that involved protecting the data, both up and down links, from eavesdropping and from jamming. Because these were, I'll leave it to you. Interception or from leakage or just people being able to deny access kind of thing? All of the above, but it's not so much people as it is uh, countries. Uh, because uh, you yeah, think about uh, the 70s and, and the 80s when we had these low-flying satellites. They had particular missions that we don't need to go into. And so the data coming down and the data going up was very interesting to our adversaries of the day, which was primarily uh, the Soviet Union at the time. So we had to take extraordinary steps to protect ourselves. Yeah, how do you stop jamming? How do you stop somebody from listening in? And those are very interesting. And this was even before security was, I'll, I'll say, before security was a thing. The downlink from a satellite was very weak, very slow. And the onboard uh, computers on the satellites were very, very, very small. They had very small word sizes. They didn't have power. Yep. How do you put encryption on a thing like that? Well, you can't. You can't because you barely have enough room for the data, never mind encryption, which adds bandwidth and requires computing power. So that was what I found really interesting. Yeah, so things like photographs be transmitted and just relays to go over the horizon kind of stuff as well, I would imagine. Even today, we still have issues with satellite security. And in fact, we're even starting to see some quantum computing being used, or at least using quantum computing for things like seeding with some of the um, satellites that are up there now. Have you continued to track it? And is it still at the leading edge in a sense of security, or is it just yet another processing node up in space in orbit? It's more mundane than it used to be. In the day when I was involved, we had to be very clever. Today, you've got the computing power up in space mm. that's uh, very able to rotate keys and encrypt and decrypt and, and oscillate uh, frequencies and so on. But back then, you couldn't oscillate frequencies. And in order to hear the satellite on the ground, you had to have these dishes that weren't exactly direct TV size. They were 60 feet in diameter. Wow. Uh, yeah, because the signal was so weak. So it was a very different world back then. Has that stayed with you in your philosophy of security? Is this the core, the foundation of what you've built? Actually, you're a teacher as well, your security curriculum and, and your philosophy at Corn Ferry on? Corn Ferry, yes. It has stayed with me. Uh, I'd say the, the three main thrusts or the three main influences on me were my mathematical background which helped me think in ways that were very different from how most security people think. Mm -hmm. uh, the satellite experience taught me a lot about doing more with less. And of course, a healthy dose of paranoia is a good thing. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's the third thrust, as it were. Yeah. Paranoia. Between the Air Force work and Corn Ferry, how much time was that? And what did you do in that gap? I left work for the government in 1989. I'd gone from small companies to very large companies, and I was doing work helping on a variety of kinds of uh, security programs for the government. In fact, the first ever independent security verification validation project ever was one that uh, I helped build, and that was for a program called Melstar, which was a oh, pretty, yeah. Yeah, pretty sophisticated satellite constellation back in the day. So I did that, but then by 1989, I went to a conference in uh, D.C. 
And one of the assistant secretary of defense uh, people spoke, because there's more than one, he spoke at this conference and he said, you know, we admit freely, we don't know how to build good code. We don't know how to measure whether the code that contractors built for us is good or not. So instead, we're going to tell you how to build it. Excellent. Well, that's quite an admission. I mean, we would see publication a decade later on the, the sort of attack topography with the square the size of the body of code. And we, we would, uh, frankly, I mean, this was after Maltics and stuff, right? So the government was used to trying to build these, still doing orange book assessments in those days. That's quite an admission. And did they put out good guidelines for building good code in those days? They did not. The irony of the whole thing is that if you don't know how to measure good code, how are you going to tell me in a legitimate way how to build the code? Mm. And I said, okay, this is not the kind of thinking I want to live my life by. So I left government work and went into the commercial sector. And that's been a wild ride ever since. In 1989, I formed my first company called InfoSec Labs. And we were a boutique consulting, security consulting company, one of the few back then. There weren't very many. And so I grew that for a number of years. And that was a whole lot of fun. So between the time I left the government and the time I joined Corn Ferry in 2013. That's a lot of time. Uh, it's a lot of time. I was a consultant. I started a couple of companies. I did a lot of consulting work independently. It was a blast, and I learned so much. It was quite a ride for me. It was InfoSec Labs, yeah, that's the name of it. Did you consider yourself a security person at that point? Were you all in on security then? Completely. All in on security. That's all I thought about day and night, that and building the company and keeping the lights on. So that was my life, security. And it's been that way ever since. Now, when did you start teaching? I believe you you teach at a college at the master's level. Is that right? Yeah, I teach at Norwich University. It's a distance learning program. And I'm not as active as I used to be. And I used to fly out to, uh, this is Norwich University in Northfield, Vermont. Mm -hmm. It's one of the NSA Centers of Excellence for Security. And so a few of us who had uh, a lot of experience in security got together and built this program. And uh, actually, I built two programs. One I participated in, it was the, well, today it's called Master of Science in Cybersecurity. It didn't used to be called that. I don't recall what it was. And the second one was Master of Science in Business Continuity, which is kind of the second thing that I do. So that was very interesting. Prevent bad things from happening. And when they do prevent worse things from happening and keep the business running, right? And Well, uh, well put. Yeah. What made you want to do that? I mean, it takes a lot of time, especially at a distance. I mean, uh, Norwich is not near where you were living. Right. Uh, what made you say, hey, I just got to do this? Was it the teaching side? Was it building something new? Was it something else completely different? It was a combination of those. First of all, I really liked the people who were uh, full-time at Norwich who invited me to, to help them do this. So it was fun working with them. I also wanted to give back to the community because... Uh, I've been around the block a few times, and uh, and I wanted to impart whatever I could and give back to the community as much as I could. And I love to teach. When I teach, I learn more than the students do. It's it's a lot of fun, and it's very productive for me. By the way, I, I would say that's my dirty little secret. When I'm bad at something, I often try to well, obviously get help, but if I really want to get good, I teach. Because having to think how to communicate something, you just get better at it. Has that been your experience as well? That's exactly right. So to anyone listening, that's the dirty secret, right? Put yourself on the hook for something a little out of your comfort zone, writing something, presenting something, teaching something, and it will force your mind to go deeper with an interest. 
And speaking of which, you've also published, right, a, a number of things on security, but I think you wrote an information handbook as well. Yeah, I was one of many who wrote that handbook. It's a thousand-page tome that you know, no one person can write it, and I don't think one person can read it either. But a number of us got together and built this so that it could be used as a textbook for our course because a Master of Science in Cybersecurity was very new. There were no good textbooks. So we ended up using all these articles that got out of date quickly, and it was hard to teach. So we wrote this book, and it's been five editions so far. I don't think it's the same one, but I was asked to write a chapter for one once, and I was in two versions of it. I wrote the chapter on um, instant messaging security, which now I go back and read and think this was a thing. um, (laughs) I doubt it's the same one. I'll go check in the appendix afterwards. Was this a set of readers of authors where you got together as a group, or were you asked by a publisher to do it? The lead editors were asked by the publisher they approached them with an idea and the publisher came back and they said, yeah, we like your proposal. Please write this and make it like this. So we did. And it was Wiley uh, was the publisher and it was called the Information Security Handbook. I think I might be in the same one. Uh, I was in the first and second editions, which I don't even usually mention to people, but I'm definitely going to go check the index on that one. What were your sections of it? Do you recall? <laughs> I'm embarrassed to tell you. I probably don't remember. That's Okay. I wrote a couple of sections on business continuity-related stuff, disaster recovery, continuity planning, and things like that. I wrote the incident response sections, probably something else I I don't recall. See, I would be proud of the incident response section. The incident messaging one, not so much. I I only know I wrote that because my wife thinks I'm a geek and a pack rat, right? So I have too many books. And (laughs) I I was going through them, and I found these. She said, why are you keeping it? I'm like, well, I'm an author. And she's like, well, BS. So I showed her, and she's like, Instant messaging. I'm like, oh, now I'm embarrassed. But uh, enough of that timeline, uh, tangent rather. What hobbies do you have? Um, I think you're a musician, right? Do you play any instruments? I am indeed a musician. In fact, I was going to become a concert pianist. I studied piano with um, some pretty famous people down at UCLA. I spent more time in the music department than in the math department. And everybody said, no, you'll never make it in music. It's too competitive. And you know, being young and foolish, I listen to the advice of people rather than. You play music of a different sort now, right? It's measured in zeros and ones. Yeah, I suppose so. It was interesting. The math department at UC Berkeley, the graduate department division, all the students got uh, uh, their own little cubicles, so we all sat there making coffee and playing music. It was it was great fun. My dad often says, and he was a university professor for eighteen years. He says it's the same short-term memory buffer for writing and math and coding and music. Do you feel like you're tapping into the same part of yourself when you do math as playing music? And has that come through into how you approach problems in security or even risk? Yeah, I know there's a connection, but I can't quantify it. I can't even qualitatively describe how they're similar. Hmm. Um, So I can't say that it affected how I look at security and mathematics, but I know it must. So that's a challenge to any psychology people listening. If you know of it, I want to hear and we'll have you on the podcast. But for now, the art and the intuition of it is just fine. Do you have other hobbies, anything else that you, you're passionate about, whether or not it bears on security? I love to travel and I love fine dining. Oh, uh, I, those I, people go together very well. I'm getting a little tired of the travel at this point. I love being places, but most of my travel is work-related. But uh, as for fine dining, I do like uh, some good food every now and then. Now, shifting uh, gears a little bit, part of this podcast is about uh, risk. 
and about managing risk and, and as a sort of poker motif and or the notion that there's a gaming or game theory that applies. Now, you went to Corn Ferry, and when we spoke, I think you were the first CISO there. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. But I was more than the first CISO. When Corn Ferry hired me, I became the security department. They went from a, a security staff of zero to a security staff of one. Well, that is an infinite improvement, right? And you only get to say that once, because after that, it's always going to be a smaller percentage, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. to one, that's, that's as good as it gets. But did they understand the risk dimension of it or what it was a CISO did? Or did they just know that this person coming in had better be a broad person who can adapt? Maybe a better question is, what was it like coming in and how did you grow the program to start? That's uh, an excellent question. First, they did understand risk because in 2012, and this is public record, Corn Ferry was breached. It was the subject of an APT attack. Note that was in 2012, the year before I joined. That's important. <laughs> so I, I remembered it was a year after my most yeah. painful breach, so I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So they had a, a whole lot to do to recover from the breach and notifications to send out and uh, um, various government agencies to answer to. And that was a big deal. And so they hired a CISO. They really didn't know what a CISO was supposed to do. Not their fault. Yeah. Uh, did they adapt to you or did you force them to say, no, no, this is what it should be? Uh, how did that happen? It was a rough road to start. For the first six months, I was viewed as an interloper. I wasn't even invited to meetings where the main topic was security. So it was a long, hard road to, mm -hmm. to make some inroads. I did have budget. The company said, we were breached. Whatever budget you need, you've got. So that was very nice. And I bought a whole lot of stuff. And over the years, I've grown the organization. We're a global organization. So now I've got a global security team. There is not an hour on the 24-hour clock where I don't have somebody who's already awake and working in security. And that's quite wow. a, yeah, that's quite a feat. I, I really like that. But it took a while, and I didn't really get invited into the C-suite in a real way until we had another attack in March of 2014. It was another APT, and we were attacked ferociously for about six weeks. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, did breach our perimeter, and they did manage to plant all sorts of stuff on our various servers, and we spent a lot of time knocking them down until we finally found the command and control server in-house and redid that one and fended off the attack. But they did not compromise our key systems. They got to our key systems, but because we had already encrypted them, they had to decrypt them prior to exfiltrating them because our key servers were very locked down. They couldn't get the keys. So they had to decrypt and store them in various kinds of files to exfiltrate them. And we saw that and stopped it. Fantastic. One of the misunderstandings in the general public, which we don't do as an industry much to fix, is not all breaches are created equal. And there's a big difference between an infrastructure breach and an information breach. It's just that word. They don't all have the same damage. They don't all mean the same thing has been penetrated. So they got in, and that's inevitable. But they didn't get it out. And that's, that's, exactly, that's, that's exactly right. At Conferry, I talk about the difference between an incident or a breach versus a compromise. Right. I, actually, I think I prefer that. I often add the qualifier for the word breach, but I like the notion of a compromise better, right? And it, it's a cleaner term. The legislation doesn't necessarily do that, and the media doesn't necessarily do that. It's just breach gets the 22-point or 122-point font. 
right? Yeah. That's not okay. But the fact that you were able to get there is huge. And by the way, I think the attitude they had, having never had a CISO before, seeing you come in the door is probably the best anyone could expect because they had an attitude and a will to get better. And I hope nobody else has to go through a, a double incident, let's just call it, right? A, a compromise followed by a breach. I hope nobody else has to go through that to get that access to the C-suite. But when you and I spoke, you actually said you, you made some, just a few months ago, really important allies in the C-suite. And you've been six years at that job. Is that right? Correct. How did you form those bonds or who helped welcome the CISO role into the business and, or brought the business to you? Were there key functions? Names I don't care so much as titles, perhaps, because I know a lot of people listening may have the same kind of obstacles and don't want that second incident. Did you have specific allies that you cultivated or helped you out? I did, and I still do. Our chief legal officer at the time uh, was a fan. He saw what was going on. Uh, he made suggestions, which we took on board, of course, and he saw the other things we were doing. And so he was impressed and helped move security forward. The board was already very interested in security. So we had fairly regular briefings to the board. I had a deck I put together that showed metrics and so on. I try to avoid uh, you know, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, I try to oh, absolutely. avoid... Yeah, I try to avoid vague warnings of impending doom, as somebody here says. They wear off, right? I mean, you scare someone, they throw money at you, and then they don't trust you again, right? And, well, and the money goes away, and you're like, why did you do it? It's like the Y2K story. Uh, oh, yeah. Companies spend lots of money fixing Y2K issues before we actually got to 2000. And when 2000 got here, nothing happened. Mm. But nothing happened because we had spent all that money, and people said, oh, we wasted <laughs> that money. By the way, there's a similar uh, deadline coming for Unix. Unix time runs out. I think it's 2037, but we got plenty of time for gloom and doom and budget by then. Yeah, um, yeah but FUD is not a good thing. So to what degree is risk part of the dialogue today? And do you do any things like tabletop exercises with your peers or do you use any game theory type approaches to how you handle risk as an organization? We have a risk management program, and we're in the process of becoming ISO 27001 certified, and that requires all sorts of risk metrics and risk... Uh, yeah, it does. All that kind of stuff, and so we're doing that. There's a lot of paper involved in ISO 27001, but I like the big picture. I like the the concepts, and so we try to move forward. We've adopted uh, what I call... At the time, it wasn't that common. Today, it's pretty common to talk about the assumption of breach attitude. Assume that either somebody is already in your infrastructure and you don't know it, and if they're not there, they will be there. And so we spend a lot of energy uh, looking for internal traversals, uh, unusual behaviors. That takes a lot of our time. It's a new term, and it's already becoming hackneyed, but it sounds like hunting, right? It sounds like you're presuming presence and then go find rather than sit back and wait for an indicator, right? Because the, the bad guys are adaptive. They're, they're going to find ways to not set off your alarms. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. We have uh, attackers who are just as smart as we are, but they have more time. They have more resources. And so they just attack away. And most of them, especially in the nation's state attacks, they're immune to any kind of law enforcement action against them because they're sponsored by the government. So they can sit there yeah. and just attack away. Yeah, it's not illegal if the only sovereignty over you allows it, right? Uh, yeah, the rest is lip service. 
As we approach the, the last uh, few questions here for the podcast, do you have any trends you'd highlight when you talk to peers? Are there things that you see happening in the industry? You know, obviously, we've talked about things like clouds and internets of whatever, uh, but are there some things that you think are particularly worth emphasizing or trends worth paying attention to in the security industry today? I think there are. Uh, one of the ones that I, I like to bring up is uh, uh, passwords. Mm. Passwords are a thing of the past. Everybody still uses them. but they should, be, they should be passwords, but they're not yet. Very good, yes. I'm looking forward to when passwords are no longer part of the equation because they don't work. But it doesn't matter how long and complex you make them, they don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet my favorite example is the spraying attack. Instead of a brute force attack where you can only try a few times, you do a spray against every account you can find. You'll find one that does, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And if you're a Corn Ferry, then you can include Corn Ferry in the name, add some numbers in the front, capitalize the first letter because that's what we all do, put the punctuation at the end because that's what we all do, Yep. and spray it across the entire enterprise, and you'll find one that works. Um, so we don't trust passwords, in fact, so we have two-factor authentication to do anything in the enterprise. And in terms of privileged accounts, we don't use, I'll say we don't use passwords at all. We actually do use passwords, but they're one-time passwords. You have to go to a device, check out the password. As soon as you check it out and log in, the password expires. It's remarkable. You're, you're almost a password-free enterprise. I mean, one-time password, fine, but to see that on an enterprise skill is a big deal. Yeah, well, I speak uh, fairly regularly, as you know, and one of my slides, one of the stories I tell is about phishing. And we do regular phishing exercises where we send out emails that look like phishing or should look like phishing, but they're actually our own. And if you click on the link, instead of compromising your credentials, you get a page that explains why you should have recognized this as a phishing attack. And we do this uh, regularly and we cover all the employees. And I like to say I've got 10,000 employees. In my wildest dreams, I couldn't imagine that I could reach 99% effectiveness in my training. But (laughs) even if I did, that would leave 1%, 1% yeah. is 100 people who are going to click on a phishing link and compromise their credentials. Oof. Yeah, when you think about it that way, that's remarkable. Yeah, that's not a good number. No. That's why we have two-factor authentication. I feel the same way in the threat world when I hear, don't worry, you know, my fill-in-the-blank product perimeter endpoint is 99% effective. I'm like, that's not acceptable at the rate at which files are opened in an enterprise. That's exactly why threat hunting is so important. Yeah, because they're going to get past it. Yeah. A couple more questions. A quick short one. Have you read anything recently, fiction, nonfiction, that you either found particularly fascinating or you found relevant to your job that you think listeners might want to hear about? Uh, Yeah, I I read quite a bit. Um, I'm reading a a work of fiction I'll call By the Rivers of Babylon, which I can't seem to put down. I want to close my door and read it all day long till I finish it. Excellent uh, work of fiction. But nonfiction-wise, I'm I just recently read a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Ooh. Really opened my eyes. It's a very well-written book, very engaging. I read it in a couple of sittings. I couldn't put that one down either. Very good book. I highly recommend it. Very cool. Uh, Next question. For anyone who might be coming up, you have seen, I don't want to make you feel old, but I think four (laughs) decades of security. Is that that right? Oh, don't remind me, but yes. Uh, but, but you have a perspective that many don't. And there's some people, young people or people looking to retrain for a new career listening. What advice or words of wisdom do you have for them in, as they consider 
the next decade or two and what they should be doing? And if they haven't gone all in, but they're close to it, what would you say to them? That's a great question. Let me say that technology is very important in security. You have to have the right technology. You have to apply it correctly. But as a CISO, the best thing I can do, the most value I provide to the company is leadership, security leadership. Mm. That's the secret. That's the magic sauce. So I would recommend anybody going to this business, practice being a leader and know what it means to be a leader. Yeah, and that can come from any background, any walk of life, any age. It's a um, lead by example and show the way. Yeah. And my final question, I, I always ask this of my guests. If at some point I do a poker game for chief information security officers, would you be interested in taking part? I'd love to do it, but I'm a terrible poker player. So That's the best kind. That's the best kind. I know. It's, everybody tells me. I say, oh, I'm a terrible poker player. Oh, yeah, come, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible myself. You should join. You should join. Come join us. But no, what I find is that it's usually much more fun. You know, I, I think of, of gambling as a price for entertainment, not a way to get rich. And it's usually a nice way to sit around and get to understand people better. And that is yeah. the heart of our profession. So, Michael, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure.